How are you all doing? It's a good morning. I think it is. Well, we'll get started. I'm excited to see so many of you, especially Madra. Every Tuesday and Thursday, she works us very hard on the bike. You're all invited, 6.30 a.m. in Glen Arden. And so there's Dennis. I'm looking at you. Lloyd, looking at you. A couple of the other bikers in the congregation. But uh, excited to see you all this morning. Today, we will turn our attention to a psalm that's been on, been on my mind for a few years. And when I was presented with the opportunity to participate in this summer psalter, it was the obvious choice for me as the scripture that has spoken most practically since I turned to it about three years ago when I was grappling with some struggles at work and in other places in life. I'm sure that you can relate to a time in your life when you felt successful in some ways and unsuccessful in others. Times when you felt hurt or confused by friendships or relationships. Or maybe you find your mind reeling from the constant inflammatory language and unfiltered information that appears on your screens. Even today, we're discouraged by the hateful demonstration just a, a few miles down the road here later today. Perhaps you feel constantly confronted with stuff that, you're, that your heart wants to buy. Or it could be that you're more uncertain today about what tomorrow holds than you were yesterday. And you're scrambling to figure out what the plan is going to be. In these moments, we all want, no, really, we need rest. These were some of the feelings that I was wading through when the Lord brought this psalm before me as a, as a north star, as a, a focus point, a focus point that reveals him over all things, over any other competing inclination. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Now, if you don't have a Bible, um, we should have some Bibles coming down the aisles. Maybe we don't. Well, I'll tell you what. If you do need a Bible, raise your hand nice and high. Nice and high. Nobody? Everybody brought their Bible to church today? Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, uh, if, if, uh, if you do need a, a Bible, um, there are some back there, and you can go pick one up uh, at any time. And of the Pew Bible, we'll be on, on page 479. Now, the big numbers in the Bible are chapter numbers. The smaller numbers are verse numbers. And we'll use those as reference points as we kind of jump, jump around Scripture this morning and explore the following statement. This is the thesis. The true God provides true rest despite draining trials, allowing us to turn in and then turn out with hope. Again, the true God provides true rest. That's verses 1 and 2. Despite draining trials, verses 3 and 4, allowing us to turn in, it's verses 5 through 7, and then to turn out with hope, verses 8 through 12. Let's read Psalm 62 together. For the director of music, for Jedithun, a psalm of David, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. 
Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken. Two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Lord, I ask your grace in this time. So we open up this psalm. I pray that we would get to know you better. This is a psalm of David. David had many enemies, including his own son, Absalom. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel, and he created a conspiracy against David, large enough to cause him to flee. David's history, his responsibility, his wealth, his future was must, was, was much. Therefore, his concerns were many. But these concerns, they, they resonate with us on a fundamental level. David has this tendency to speak into things which are, which are familiar to many, even though the circumstances that he, he endured were really unique to him and, and a few. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a much older man, a, a skeptic, and he says to me, if David were living today, there'd be nothing for you to talk with him about. Our times are so different. I refuted him, a bit argumentatively, but I should have just opened up the Psalms. They're chock full of very relatable praises and pleas. And in this Psalm, as in all of his Psalms, we hear David talk of the same God that we serve today. We hear him cry out, how long, in the midst of suffering by the hands of people that were um, that, that uh, were influenced by his own family. They were his friends. Then we hear him grapple between the distractions around him, but the things he knows that are right. We would have much to discuss with David if he walked through those doors right now. Most notably, our true God. In verses 1 and 2, we find that the true God provides true rest. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Truly, my soul finds rest. What is rest? True rest. We're prone only to think about the, the physical aspects of rest. I'm tired. I had a long week. George is preaching, I think I'll take a nap. <laughs> and certainly, physical rest is imperative. Solomon even writes, in vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Indeed, God gave mankind a rhythm for human flourishing at creation, and he reiterated that in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, you are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. Yet this commandment, which, which would surely replenish the body, reflects a, a greater rest that extends beyond the physical world. God, needing no rest, rested himself on the seventh day. We also see from Jesus that the whole concept of the Sabbath is not some arbitrary, rigid set of physical rules. That's what the Pharisees wanted us to believe. That's what they tried to make it. But as recorded in Mark 3, Jesus healed many on the Sabbath day. If the Sabbath command was only a, a physical rule as defined by the Pharisees, these healing acts, they would have nullified his perfect life. They would have been sinful. But we know that wasn't the case. Jesus says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And he demonstrates that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day, is a day that celebrates Jesus' command over all diseases, all sicknesses, all ailments. And that's a, a mere shadow of the things to come when we see his command over all things. 
Even the demons cried out on that day, you are the son of God. So you see, true Sabbath, true rest is about more than just the physical. It's about the soul. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Though David had not yet heard this, he had a firm grasp on it. From a bodily and material perspective, David had had it all. He was an accomplished man of war. He may not have been as good-looking as Saul, but he was a proven and strong man. He was a king. Yet, despite all of this wealth, his soul was completely wrecked by various trials and sin. He understood more than most that we could have it all in this worldly realm, but have an utterly distraught inner being. And while millions of people look all over the place for all sorts of peace, David knew that the one, one place true rest could be found is in God. Notice this. The most true rest is inextricably linked with the very presence of God. Jesus says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Make no mistake, though. True rest is not a a deliverable from him. It's not as though you, you put an order in for peace, and peace comes a few days later, two days with Amazon Prime. No. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There is an identifying with him. True rest is when our soul is with God, in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus means when he says, peace, I leave with you. Listen to him in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. All this I've spoken while while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This link between peace and the presence of God is plain because peace is a person. I thought I came up with that. I wanted to double check. I didn't. Ann Voskamp said that on Twitter like three years ago. It's great. And she's right. Peace is a person. The Father is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. The Son, Jesus, is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit is the Comforter. In all three of his persons, God administers his peace to us by dwelling with us. Remember that bumper bumper sticker? No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. Can help us today. So rest is being confident of that communion in peace. That being the case, regardless of our physical and earthly situation, as we look forward to an even truer soul rest when this earth will pass away and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Peace in all his glory. Easy, right? I'm sure all of you have this figured out. Nobody has any concerns this morning? Of course not. From the place we stand right now, even in this moment, we understand the difficulty of this situational reality. Apart from our limited view on earth, there is a spiritual view that we have to understand more deeply to grasp this rest. 
That is that this God is the true God. A God who sits in the heavens and does what he pleases. The New City Catechism puts it like this. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, glory and goodness, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. Indeed, this is the true God who also loves us and created us to glorify him and enjoy him fully. But each one of us is turned away from him. Me, you, David, everybody. Nobody's excluded. All have turned away. David wrote it this way in Psalm 51. Verse 3, I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass judgment. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. This rebellion this sin has separated us from peace. This holy, holy, holy God who is perfect, who is sinless, and in whom imperfection cannot be present. Furthermore, because God is our creator, this sin is done against him. He must judge us. The judgment of this sin is death in hell. And separation from this God, our peace, forever. Hebrews 4 deals with this extensively and says that those, were, those hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in rebellion shall never enter his rest. So how then can David find true rest in this true God? And he says, again in verse 1, my salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. David was never shaken because salvation from this eternal unrest comes from God himself. The true God has true authority and power to provide a sure salvation. It comes at great cost. It's not a, again, not a simple transaction where we order up some saving and then rest comes to us. No, it's a divine exchange wherein God gives himself to reconcile us back to his rest. In David's time, such an exchange was not fully realized. But it was clear that salvation was by faith in God alone. By following him with all one's heart, soul, and mind there could be no money, no works, no circumstance apart from God which could solve for David's sin. But today, we have a greater revelation. We understand that this exchange, uh, we understand this exchange through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is God incarnate. He himself provides salvation through dying on the cross to, to pay for our sins by his own blood. Jesus had no sin of his own that he should have died. And this is why this act of salvation was effectual and so costly. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God. This is how we best understand that our salvation not only comes from him, but also that he is salvation. Now, our act to, to receive this scandalous exchange is to repent of our sins and believe on him, our salvation, our peace, our true God for the saving of our soul. Then we may enter into this true rest. And for anybody here today who hasn't done this, do it. Like David, acknowledge your sin. 
your rebellion from this most high, true God and accept him as your salvation. David says, in fact, and God says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Enter his rest, sufficient for today, and true rest, effectual forever. With the one true God. And for all who have made this decision, we can join with David in saying, he is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I will never be shaken. Of course, even as we can embrace the truth of our God and our rest in him, we, like David, are constantly impacted by the regular difficulties that life presents. Even while we're still confident of our positional standing with God, righteous. And these often relentlessly draining trials may be smaller and and common, or they may feel unimaginable. David's life saw both types of trials. From being a young man, he was constantly shepherding unruly sheep on hot days. But, But he also stood up against Goliath, a giant with just a sling and a rock. He had to run from his own son for his life. So the the trials that he endured were common and, and unimaginable. So living with the promise of the true God providing true rest was critical for David time and time again. Verses 3 and 4 tell us a bit about these draining trials. Verse 3, How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. As you can tell, David must find his rest in God. His whole life, people were coming after him. Goliath, Saul, Absalom, David had some enemies. What's more than that, his friends joined Absalom's conspiracy against him. In Psalm 55, he says, if it were only his enemies, that's a pill he could swallow. You could get that almost. Then he points to his friend Ahithophel and says, but it's you, a man my equal, my companion. My familiar friend. It's no wonder why he would describe himself as a leaning wall, tottering fence. It's been trial after trial from all places. And here he he points the how long question towards his enemies. It almost seems like it's out of exasperation. Like, how long are we going to do this? Because he knows who he's dealing with. Surely they intend. They take delight in lies. These are not the best people here. And it's the delighting, delighting in lies that hits me. Jesus makes something clear about these folks who delight in lies. In John 8, he says of them, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, David was not only dealing with people trying to depose him from his earthly throne. Satan was trying to depose David's offspring, Jesus, from his everlasting throne. That lofty place David speaks of was not only the throne he occupied as king on earth, but also his seat in the heavenlies near to the truer king of Israel, Jesus. For David, so much was rolled into one, the physical and the spiritual, and these attacks were draining. They were exhausting. This wasn't the only time David asked how long. We have to think back to the beginning of the summer psalter when Matt Swanson 
Matt and Stacy, I saw them. So happy to see them again. Hey there. Matt brought us Psalm 13, and he shared some of the following thoughts, so thank you, Matt. In that psalm, David asked God how long four times in a row. And his question does not seek the intent of the trial. Rather, it signals his longing for deliverance without being foolishly demanding of the deliverer. He finishes that passage by saying, I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. By asking how long with the right perspective on God's goodness, David illustrates to us how we can approach God with with our petitions in an honoring manner that acknowledges the creation's dependence on the Creator. It is that dependence on God which allows the psalmist to to hold his resolution that that he will never be shaken despite these draining trials. I mean, how, how easy would it be for him to lose hope if he depended on a lesser God? What if David was not confident that his entire life and soul were in the hands of a God named Faithful and True, who judges and makes war with justice? There would certainly be no way to find rest in the midst of liars who created an unjust war against him. Not a chance. But his deep-held, comprehensive theology, packed so succinctly in verse 1, is so rich that no trials will shake him from his lofty place of rest. And we need this resolve, don't we? I know I could use it. Most of us will never feel the pressure of being royalty with a threat of overthrow lingering in our old household, unless I'm missing a couple of heirs in here. However, I'm quite confident that each of us have felt hurt by somebody who seemed bent on putting us down. Maybe it's the coworker at your company, a kid on the playground, or the family member who just won't sit down and have a conversation. I recently listened to The Sun Does Shine, telling the story of Anthony Ray Hinton. He was on death row for 30 years after being falsely accused of murder. And this case was not like a serial podcast, Adnan Syed, or or OJ Made in America, where, where years later we're talking about all of the evidence and going back and forth. No, no, no. This dude was innocent, very clearly. And many in the courtroom, in the state's attorney's office, delighted in this lie. They delighted in the fact that an innocent man would be put to death. As I listened to the book, I couldn't help but recall this psalm and imagine sitting in that cell 30 feet from the electric chair. Would I be able to declare, truly, my soul finds rest in God? I hope and pray that God would give me the grace and pour out the that assurance continually throughout a trial like that. But I think David lays out two ways that we can strengthen our spiritual resolve to prepare for whatever comes. Number one, work out your soul by thinking on God. Work out your soul by thinking on God. Read his word. Read good books about him. Jen Wilkins, None Like Him. Jaya Packers, Knowing God, Sproul's Holiness of God. Proverbs 2 reads this. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as silver and search for it as his hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Think on God. Number two, repeat the truths that God has revealed to you. Now, this is a directive from God to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, these commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, 
says, talk. Don't listen to yourself. And he puts it like this. I'm going to read this. It's a good read. It's worth it here and now. We've got the time. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual oppression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in the matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, in Psalm 32, parenthetically I'll ask, that's what Jehil preached to us back in July. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been repressing him, uh, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must not turn on, you must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is the help of my countenance and my God. We can be thankful to Martin Lloyd-Jones for that wonderful two paragraphs. And this is precisely what we find David doing in verses 5 through 7. Recognizing that the, the true God provides true rest despite draining trials, he turns in and he talks to himself. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. This is such a beautiful and simple example of taking a foundational truth and reinforcing it. In verse 1, he says, truly, my soul finds rest in God. And then in verse 5, he says, yes, my soul, find rest in God. Beside the fact that Hebrew poetry employed this kind of repetition, it's David's confidence in the truth that allows him to turn in and admonish his soul despite these heavy trials. Continually reminding ourselves of the true God and his salvation for us is essential to our spiritual growth. During times of difficulty, we need to do this for our soul's comfort, remembering that our salvation depends on God. And during times of prosperity, we need to do this to protect against the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, remembering to honor God, who we depend on for our honor. We've got to be in the habit of doing this. In fact, not long from now, we'll do this in a manner Jesus ordained, the Lord's Supper. This practice, though serious, is very simple. Jesus institutes the act to say, remember me. Remember my body given for you. Remember my blood poured out for you. Each time we prepare to take the bread and the cup, it's an opportunity to talk at our soul, confessing any sin, telling it to find rest in God as we take it. And not only that, in that act, we reaffirm verses 6 and 7. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. 
My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Notice a word here that sticks out. A word that becomes beautiful in these verses. And that girds our whole concept that that true rest is only in our identification with the persons of the true God. My. My. My rock. My salvation. My fortress. My mighty rock. My refuge. A God who claims all is mine has become mine. Jesus gave his body and his blood for me. And each time we take the bread and the cup, it's like a little love letter from him saying, I'm yours, you're mine. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Fanny Crosby hit it on the head with that one, didn't she? The peace we have with God, represented in this sacrament, is only a foretaste of our true rest. When he comes back and he shares in this meal with those he calls mine. Until he comes, this supper is critical for the soul of the believer. I mean, how many days, how many days go by when I don't contemplate the shedding of his blood for me? Or how many days pass when I don't look to the sky in anticipation of seeing Jesus descending? God, in his mercy, gave me and all believers this gift of the supper. So each time we take it, I remember truly my soul finds rest in God, my salvation comes from him. And each time I take it, I talk at my soul. And I say, soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. So what is left to do when we know that the true God provides true rest despite draining trials, allowing us to turn in with hope? We turn out with hope. Verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. I love how these verses fall into place after David finds such resolve in the preceding stanzas. He speaks with such confidence on practical matters after solidifying this foundational truth of God. And this is what personal testimony should do. It should allow one to turn out in proclamation and rejoicing of who God is. He tells it to all the people in no uncertain terms. It's not some postmodern, post-truth, soft suggestion. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. He only has this confidence as his innermost being wells up and out. Notice that turning out is his last step in this psalm. Many religions or people They'd have you believe that turning out and doing good deeds or giving testimony will gain favor with God. But Jesus says with authority in Matthew 7, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. See, you can say and do all of the right things, but Jesus looks at the heart. He says in Luke, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So so we don't pour out our heart and do good works to get him to love us, but because he loves us and gave his life for us, we are saved by grace through faith in that work alone. We have a refuge that we can trust in at all times, and we did nothing to deserve that gift. So there's no other response but to pour out our hearts. Maybe you're sitting here today wondering, how do you pour out your heart like David? Well, let me make one suggestion made clear by this psalm and a whole lot of other biblical examples. Lean into the true God 
through prayer and reading his word. Yes, I know, that's the Sunday school answer. And yes, I already told you to think about God. But I want to place some emphasis here. And the emphasis I want to place is that rather than focusing on the fruit of our faith, which we often do, let's focus on the root of our faith, capital R, Jesus. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with praying for fruit or purposing in your heart to do a certain thing. But if you want to evangelize, or if you want to exhibit patience, you want to carry out our five M's, spread the message, show mercy, shepherd to maturity, seek to multiply, send missionaries, then boldly approach his throne. Stand in the fire on Sinai. Walk in the garden with him. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Kneel at the cross. Practically, we do this by delighting in his word and meditating on his precepts in prayer. Psalm 1 says, the person who does this is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. See, good fruit is naturally and abundantly produced when we are deeply rooted and taking in streams of living water given by the root of David. As Proverbs 3, 6 says, think about him in all your ways and he will guide you on the right paths. It is from this perspective of who God is and who we are that David then turns out with some proverbial guidance on death, money, and judgment. Verse 9. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Lowborn, highborn. I memorized this in the NIV, and those words just stuck out to me. The ESV reads, low estate and high estate. Brought to mind some things that happened last year. Last August, I got to go to London for work, a trip of a lifetime. And I was able to visit Buckingham Palace, the highest of estates. I walked the halls filled with these beautiful paintings, Magnificent tapestries, gilded thrones. And all of it is kept for Her Majesty the Queen and the descendants of the House of Windsor. Something that also happened last year was ARC sent a group to Kenya to work with the Rafa House and, and the team there, which ministers in some of the most economically depressed neighborhoods in the world. The team... Uh, the team shared stories of spending time with people in the dump site they call home. There is in this world a large disparity. Anyone living in this area understands that. We don't have to go far, drive across a couple states. You'll see disparity. And even with this seemingly irreconcilable gap, there's a great equalizer. Death. When I said that to the skeptic who I was discussing David with, he said, well, that's crude. Yes, it is. And it doesn't make it any less true. And when you compare the, the lifespan of a person, even a person who's 900 years old, to an eternal God, meaning no beginning, no end, we are nothing. Stephen Harris shared this from Psalm 39 a few weeks ago. There again, David says, my lifespan is nothing in your sight. He goes on further after discussing the lowborn and the highborn to discussing the money issue. Verse 10, do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. See, he knows that the, both the lowborn and the highborn are still going to lose perspective from time to time. Oftentimes, really. Especially about material gain. So he provides a reminder that money can disappear in a snap. And even if it does stick around, you can't take it with you when you die. 
All sorts of things can happen when we lose perspective and fail to trust God. We see the the resulting tangled web of problems throughout the biblical narrative. Here, David mentions extortion, dishonest gain where one uses force or threats to acquire things. And such acts like those are commonly agreed upon as wrong. So then he goes on to discuss stealing. And this, while on its face, most people agree is wrong, it often takes a different, less obvious form that tends to be more socially acceptable. Still, let's say that one works legitimately and hard for their money and their riches increase. Whatever the case, when when one trusts or hopes or takes heart in money rather than God, it is vain and destructive. Riches are fleeting in this life. Money is no rock. It's no fortress. The highest kingdoms have fallen to rule. Percy Shelley, he wrote a poem to explore this, this whole concept of, of, of kingdoms falling. It's called Ozymandias. And the poet writes of a traveler walking in the desert, and he comes upon this great broken statue shattered all over the sand. And he reads the inscription at the pedestal. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Ozymandias, trying to equate himself with God God by his grand wealth and power, had only a desert to show for it. And whether his kingdom was destroyed in battle or it flourished until his death, doesn't matter. He was separated from it all in death. Solomon, like Ozymandias, had a great kingdom. Of course, his kingdom was real. He wrote in Ecclesiastes, exactly as he comes, so he will go. God says to Adam in Genesis 3, you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So trusting in anything in this world is futile. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away along with all its desires. But, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That is true rest. Psalm 121 says that when we look to God, he will preserve your soul. No other God can make this unfailing claim on your life. Life and, life and treasure does not end for God's people. That's what makes him the true God and all other gods false. David goes on to finish this psalm by solidifying that claim at the end. Verse 11. One thing God has spoken. Two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Our God is mighty. He is the epitome of power. That's something about God. See, when he is something, he is the truest form of it. No definition of an attribute of God can be, can be more accurately described than what he is. That is why his name is Yahweh. I am what I am. And the coalescence of all of the attributes of God is what makes him unfailing in his love. See, if God was not love, we would all be dead in our sins because he would not have sent his son to die for us. And if God was not power, we would all be dead in our sins because God could not have raised Christ from the dead. But because he loved us, he sent his son, lowborn, to die. And because he is power, he raised him from the dead, and our hope does not fail. Therefore, our souls can find true rest in the true God. Think of that old hymn, living he loved me, dying he saved me, 
Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. And when he comes back on that day, it will be glorious for those who trust in him. There will be judgment for all people everywhere. He will reward each one of us according to what we have done. What will you say that you've done? Will you say, Lord, Lord, I've done many things in your name. Start rattling off all of your good deeds. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You'll be cast into outer darkness forever. Or will you say, truly, my soul finds rest in you alone. My salvation comes from you. To hear him respond, enter my rest. People, trust in him. Your salvation comes from him. If you have not embraced that truth yet, repent of your sins. Believe in his work on the cross that you may enjoy true rest with our true God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this true rest. We thank, the, thank you that you came and you died and that you rose from the grave so that we could obtain it. We confess that each one of us has turned away, that we, it was not of our own accord that we would be reconciled to you, but that you loved us first. We thank you for being our true God. We pray that we may, we may be able to have confidence in that daily, even this hour. Lord, we ask that throughout this week, we might remember Psalm 62, that we could think rightly like David, and that we would talk at ourselves, that it might comfort us, it might protect us. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.